Good morning, friends. Alas, I do not have any trivia on Titus to give, uh, but hopefully some words that will be helpful. Uh, Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken by your word, and we ask that it would be a word that makes a difference. So please help us not to harden our hearts, but by your spirit, open up and soften our hearts uh, and ready our ears and our minds that we might seek to know you and love you and serve you as you deserve. Amen. Well, a story that has always captured my, kind of captured my, my heart and my, captivated my attention is Animal Farm, uh, a, short, you know, a short little book by George Orwell. Uh, it also has a good cartoon adaption if you prefer film. You may know it as a, a, a political fable that speaks of revolutions. Uh, Just to give a little brief overview of of what happens in the story, uh, you have a group of of talking animals on a farm. They're cruelly treated by uh, the farmer. And the beasts, the animals, are inspired by uh, uh, their dying pig leader uh, who urges them to forcefully overthrow their master and put into place a system called animalism. And so they, they do this and they boot the, the farmer out and decide to govern themselves according to these principles where each animal uh, does its fair share and no one lords over anyone else. And they write seven commandments of animalism on the wall to kind of speak to their beliefs and their way of life. It's pretty on the nose. Uh, so the, the, the commandments in involve, uh, there are things like two legs are evil, so humans, Uh, no animal shall wear clothes, no animal shall sleep in a bed, no animal shall drink alcohol, so doing things that humans do, Uh, and it it finishes with a line that all animals are equal, kind of summing it all together, That, that is animalism. And so the society gets off to, well, maybe a seemingly good start, but you then start to have trouble because there are the pigs, and particularly one big ruthless pig, uh, Napoleon, who's a clever, clever pig, and he starts to bend the rules. Uh, and while talking the talk, they start breaking all the commandments on the wall. Um, with certain justifications, they start to lord over the other animals because really they need to be the ones that are in charge. They're the smart pigs. Uh, they start walking, uh, and their behaviour deteriorates to the point where uh, they get the poor, old, injured workhorse boxer sent off to the glue vat- factory. Um, in exchange for some alcohol. Very distressing stuff. Uh, But it becomes apparent by the end to all the other animals what is taking place when looking at that wall of commandments, that final commandment, that all animals are equal has the subtle change. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Now, Animal Farm is a, a good story, but we know that In many ways, it's a real story that has played out in human society time and time again. And among many things I think it speaks to is that uh, humans often do not really believe what they claim to believe. It's one thing to say something, uh, for it to be held with the lips, but another for that thing to be uh, really uh, deeply held in the heart. And this is especially so when it becomes inconvenient to hold to the truth or another interest gets in the way and you can kind of just push out the ideal out the door uh, as the pigs did. 
Now, the accusation is that Christians uh, are this way. Uh, that is often the, the accusation leveled at us, that we do not practice what we preach. Uh, that's usually what the news is looking for, examples of Christian behaving badly. And unfortunately, they, they have a fair amount of ammunition. Uh, sometimes it's based on, uh, I guess, a misunderstanding of what Christianity is about, but sometimes the charge sticks. What we're going to find in Titus is that the gospel uh, is the truth that makes a difference. It needs to make a difference in our lives. And we come to this question, I think, do you believe what you say you believe? That's the question there in the introduction. And I think that's the question that I want to govern us as we think through this passage. The whole book of Titus says, yes, it it must. Uh, Paul speaks to uh, the heart of the letter where he says, My aim is to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. That's, um, I think, Titus in a nutshell. You can trace the whole letter just with that statement. So, do you believe what you say you believe? Paul's getting towards the end of his ministry at this point. Uh, It seems this church in in Crete has only been recently established uh, relatively late in the game. Paul has let Uh, left Titus there to get stuff done on on the island and there's much that needs doing this church in a fledgling state maybe it's enthusiastic but dangers abound it seems that Crete was not an easy place to live God's way there are plenty of temptations it seems Uh, perhaps it was something of a party island a bit of a wild place the challenges of hedonism and immoral behavior which we're going to see throughout the letter But not only this, there is trouble uh, potentially that that can come within the church. In verses 10 to 16, Paul warns of false teachers who were perhaps once part of the church, but now want to teach the church uh, ideas that they find appealing. And at the heart of this, uh, and the heart of their ideas, is this idea that belief and practice can in some way be separated. And Paul wants to show them, no, godliness matters. And so while this uh, letter was written around 2,000 years ago, uh, geographically and historically distant, the spiritual issues that we face today are the same. We can struggle in the day-to-day to to see the truth making uh, an impact in our lives. Uh, We'll find there are church leaders who are unsure what the Christian message is or don't live in line with it. And so we need to take to heart this letter, this small but powerful letter, that the gospel makes a difference. It's about walking the walk. And so we start with that first point, the gospel makes a difference with Paul's uh, introduction, which is quite dense and quite layered uh, when you read it. But Paul speaks of the gospel making a difference in his life. That's that's how he begins. Uh, We know that because he says, Paul, a servant or a slave of God and an apostle of Christ. You might know that Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus and it turned his world upside down. And Paul is blunt about the claim that God has on him. Um, He is God, he is his slave, but he is also uh, one dedicated to Christ as an ambassador. He is in God's, the grip of God's grace and love. We can almost speak of Paul being almost like a person possessed by grace. Um, We can think of people who are passionate for a cause, perhaps maybe even seen as too enthusiastic. Uh, I was reading recently about... uh, an individual called Benjamin Lay. 
Uh, and he was an anti-slavery activist in Barbados and America uh, in the 17th century, one of the first uh, to see it and to call it out for the evil that it was. And if, but if you were to look at his life, you would think he was pretty weird. He was a pretty weird man. Uh, he refused to eat anything or to wear anything that had any chance of being made by slaves. So he made all of his own clothes uh, and he grew all of his own food. He would put on public demonstrations, like he'd stand in the snow in public, uh, wearing very little to show the kind of conditions that slaves were in uh, during winter. On another occasion, um, he kidnapped uh, the child of some slaveholders temporarily uh, to show them how Africans felt when their relatives were, were sold overseas. Uh, I'm not sure how that turned out. Uh, he was a bit bonkers, but... Nobody could accuse him that he did not care, that the truth did not matter to him. And we know that that is the same of Paul, don't we? People would have thought Paul was a bit weird, and yet he proclaimed the message of the gospel faithfully. He suffered deeply for it. He's a captive to grace, and he wants us to be a captive to grace as well. If we look at verse 1, Paul speaks of his whole task that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, those two things. He gives, uh, first of all, he speaks of building the faith of the elect, uh, the elect being a term to refer to God's chosen people, which is to say that it's no accident if you trust in Jesus. That is actually God's wonderful plan from the get-go. God has intervened from eternity to draw you in to his son. But Paul wants to build on that. He doesn't just want us to kind of sit with that. He wants us to continue to build and to trust in Jesus all the more, to put off the worldly things that do not matter and to trust in the one who really does. Secondly, Paul speaks of the church's knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. What is the truth? Well, I think... In terms of the context there, it's very clearly the gospel. It's the gospel that has put Paul here. It's the gospel that he is preaching, right? This is the truth that really does matter. The Christian faith is not based on kind of whims or a need to feel a sense of peace or to feel good, but a message. God has spoken. He wants us to know something. What does he want us to know? He wants us to know he wants us to know the gospel. He wants us to know that our Saviour has come, that he has lived and died and risen again for our salvation. Uh, notice that Paul, in two occasions, calls God his Saviour. It's by God's mercy alone that we are restored to God by the precious blood of Christ as sons and daughters of the kingdom. Friends, do you believe this truth? Uh, I think we can often assume that as a church and when someone's preaching, the preacher is you know, literally preaching to the converted. I want to say that is not necessarily the case. There may be some today who do not know Christ. And the question to kind of cut to the, you know, cut to the point is, do you know the truth? Do you trust that Jesus is your saviour? Because before we talk about anything else, that is at the heart. This has to come first that he has died for me, and that he is the risen Lord. Do I know that? Do I trust in that? 
Do I believe what I say I believe? So, but then we see that the truth of Christ changes us, don't we? That knowing the truth is the path to godliness. He saved us for a purpose, to live with him as our king, as we move towards his kingdom. He's, he's, uh, we're told he's giving us new desires so that we can say no to what is wrong and live for what is right. We have a new master in Christ, and that is the path of godliness. That is what the truth, where the truth is supposed to lead. It is supposed to make a difference in roads into our life. Because if it doesn't, what does that say about the message? If it, do, you know, if it doesn't really change us, how can we expect others to heed the gospel, to want to see Christ and trust in him? Or for people to live God's way if we aren't willing to see how that transforms us? All of this is done in a context, in a situation of hope, Verse 2, Paul speaks of the building activity being based on the foundational reality of eternal life. Friends, our end is one of joy. Heaven is our home. This will be in contrast to the message that we get from the world, which is one of just constant disappointment, uh, and then you die. When I turn on ABC News, uh, very rarely... I can't even think of the last time I saw an article that said, uh, chin up, things are getting better. No, just from last night's browse of the articles, it's Australia has a housing crisis, rising inequality, climate change, and apparently Pilates injuries are on the rise as well. Yeah, that's a genuine article. Uh, things to be concerned about. Now, some of these things may be true, and yet we need to see the bigger picture because we'll also be told... That for Christians, our world is increasingly one of disappointment and irrelevance. Uh, the atheists uh, in the UK, they, they famously organised a bus ad which read, uh, there's probably no God, uh, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Interesting to say they use the word probably. I mean, I think you'd want to be pretty certain. But uh, Paul reminds us actually God, God is the God who does not lie. He is the God of truth who keeps his eternal promises. And the biblical testimony, the evidence for this is, well, the evidence is the biblical testimony, that God, through time and in different people's lives, has acted faithfully to save again and again and again. And Paul points us back towards the fact that this promise is from eternity. From eternity before anything existed, God planned to give us eternal life in Christ. Friends, I hope you know that that is God's unshakable commitment to us. There is no uncertainty in what will happen because as we've seen, Jesus has come, Paul has spoken of, he's been brought to light. Our future is certain. And so we must let this future situation of hope guide our present reality. If heaven is our home then godliness is important in this life now. And so as Christians, I hope we would be seeking to live with direction. Uh, I don't mean in the sense that you have a a five-year plan, but what I I hope to mean is that we're not just drifting along in life, but we are engaged with what God is doing in us and in our world. What does that look like? Well, I think that looks like being prayerful, being concerned 
with the way that God called us to live? What does your life say about where Jesus is? Does it say that he's still in the grave? Does it say that maybe he's probably never going to come back? Or does it say that we are waiting for you, Lord, and we are seeking to live your way? That's important because that speaks of the truth that leads to godliness. Because we don't want to be those who live as though God is a liar. So, friends, do we believe what we say we believe? And character, as Paul begins to show us, that begins at the top, doesn't it? The truth needs to be shaping those who are, are leading, those who have pastoral responsibility. Now, the situation in Crete was, it's a, it's a big island, right? There's likely many congregations, and Titus cannot look after them all by himself. And so he needs to appoint elders, because the church can't just be left to its own devices. Uh, there needs to be leadership. There are people who are seeking to have influence, there are temptations and they're, uh, you know, the young Christians are probably going to struggle in falling back into the habits of the surrounding culture. And so Paul sees as central to the future of these churches to have leaders of good quality and character. That's the number one priority, I think, almost throughout the letter, because it would be a disaster, I think, if, if they did not, if they had, as we see, the false teachers next week, uh, because what Paul's whole point is to avoid this, the terrible situation of verse 16, that we would claim to know God, but by our actions deny him. That is the opposite of what the gospel entails. And so pastoral leadership matters. Uh, what does a leader do? Well, they're not a, a, a ruler, but they shepherd, they set the tone. For other believers, they instruct with their lives and with their words, and they are the public face, in many ways, of the church. And we're aware the danger when there is institutional rot at the top, whether that's in businesses um, or, you know, the police chief or in the church, right? These things filter down. We can probably perhaps think of sad cases in the church where this has gone astray because, well, you, you know, we are influenced by others. And so Paul's concerned for the integrity of Christian leaders. And, and he wants uh, Titus to think carefully about who he appoints. So what are the qualities? Well, they all have to do with character. Often we can look for competency over character, but that is a, a grave mistake when that comes to ministry. Uh, I used this example last week at Winmalee. Uh, but when I was a young Christian man, uh, there was a Christian... Um, pastor in America who uh, many uh, young men were kind of enraptured with and, and thought he, what an excellent teacher. And I was one of those, right? He was one of the best preachers I've ever heard. He could speak for an hour and just hold your attention. On paper, I would line up, I think, with all the kind of doctrinal statements that he would make. And you'd kind of hear certain things and he could be a little bit, um, a little bit brash and angry. But you think, oh, well, you know, look at all the fruit that is being produced. I mean, friends, let me tell you the tragedy of that situation is that church basically imploded and it was revealed behind the scenes that he was a bully uh, and in many ways a cruel person. And that destroyed not only the church but indeed the faith of many people. Character matters. And that can happen in a small church as well as a large megachurch. 
And so Paul wants leaders and shepherds who would set a godly tone and example, that the knowledge of the truth is changing them, right? And let us um, not just think that these qualities, that while Paul speaks of them as being important for leaders, they're actually for all of us to be pursuing. But first, he, he draws the attention uh, to the reputation of one's character, particularly in the domestic sphere, in the home. Uh, the NIV literally translates it as that he is faithful to his wife, but the phrase is uh, just a one-woman man. And that speaks to a number of things, right? Just a character that he is faithful, that you know, there's no adultery, uh, but also in a, in a society where there's polygamy, he only has one wife. Um, the point is that if a shepherd cannot love and serve his wife, how is he going to serve Christ's bride, the church? Secondly, there's the question of children. Uh, it's an interesting little verse there as it speaks of believing children. We don't want to read it in a crude way. Uh, I think the stress is uh, on dependent children rather than adults. And we also need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Uh, our doctrine of God's grace is that only God can move a person's heart to faith. He uses people to do so, and especially he often uses faithful people, but there is no guarantee. And it's with that sad truth that many godly parents will see their, their children renounce their faith, you know, despite their faithful witness. On the other hand, there are some Christian parents who don't value teaching their children or they model it poorly. And it's obviously a sensitive question, but I think Paul's point is that is the home a Christian home? And it's focused particularly on what is um, the individual doing to make it a Christian home? Is, is he teaching the message? Is he living it out in the most important kind of earthly relationships that God has, has given for him? So note, we should also note that this verse can't be applied to, you know, say, a single person. Right? In the same way. It's just one reputational test, I think, that Paul is giving. But Paul then gives a sketch of other character habits uh, that would either disqualify or would commend this person for leadership. He lists a bunch of red flags, doesn't he? And in many ways, these are some no-brainers when you think about what the pastoral task involves, you know, things you really do not want. So it's not comprehensive, but these are some important, critical things. The first of which... The first two focus on temperament, don't they? Uh, overbearing, which isn't so much about being uh, caring too much. It's about being arrogant and crossing the line to self-importance. Or uh, the, second, the second one is quick-tempered. Uh, and so to be a hothead, you're unlikely to be suited for the work of ministry. Now, these things, they're kind of hard to measure. You might measure them a bit more on vibe. Uh, and they might be seen more over time. And I think... Uh, wisdom probably dictates um, that leadership and trust in the church comes slowly over time. And I, I really like that in our Anglican system, it actually it takes a while to become an Anglican minister. Um, you know, that can be frustrating if you're young and you want to go, you know, a go-getter, but that's actually good because it gives you time to be assessed on, on your character. Um, I think leadership and trust needs to come slowly. Then Paul speaks of perhaps some particular things um, that maybe characterise the cultural situation uh, of Crete, of being drunk or violent, and uh, of, of dishonoured gain. According to one Roman commentator, 
Crete was a place noted for its greed. Uh, he says, the Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. He might be exaggerating, but uh, it seems that perhaps there were some cultural issues going on. Um, but what Paul wants us to tell us is that character really does matter. And so, on the other hand, you have we've got the red flags, now you've got the green flags. The things that a minister should be demonstrating, which in many ways are the pole opposite of, of the vices. Um, you know, if a minister is hospitable and loves what is good, then they're probably not going to be uh, arrogant or self-serving and they will demonstrate patience. If a minister is self-controlled, then presumably the issue of violence or overindulgence of alcohol or other sins would not be um, a problem. And perhaps most importantly, he lists to be upright, righteous, and holy, which are the very characteristics of God. Now, only God himself is truly holy and righteous, but God calls us to model ourselves and our lives after him. And so the whole picture is of a person not who is absolutely perfect, but that it is evident that the gospel of grace is evident in their life, that they are relying upon it, they are relying upon God, and they are seeking to serve Christ. Uh, and that's a, you know, that's a big reminder, especially for me as I stand here preaching, and I guess for anyone who is in a position of leadership, uh, but for us all, that we need to think about um, what is it that we seek to value as a church, especially when it comes to leaders. Finally, he speaks of a holding firm to the, the trustworthy message um, so they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Clarity, uh, that's actually one of the things that our church holds as a key value in who we are. You might think, well, why? Why clarity? There's probably a lot of other qualities. But I think clarity is a great one. It is very important to be clear. It doesn't matter how charismatic you are. It's really important to be clear. You don't want your surgeon to be unclear about the surgery that they're about to perform on you. You don't want your pilot to be unclear about the destination to where they are flying and if that warning light that's flashing is really all that important. We want our leaders to be clear on the fundamentals of the faith, of God's creation, of sin, of the gospel, of Christ's cross and resurrection, of justification by faith of the sufficiency of God's word, that Christ will return. These things really matter. Theology matters because truth and error matter. And so the aim and task of the minister is to, uh, well, is to speak the truth, to kind of to build up and to tear down. Uh, firstly, to tear down, to tear down false gospels and messages we hear in the world. For instance, that our security is ultimately found in our material things, in our wealth. Or that fitting in is more important than holiness. Or that it's okay to hold the truth of Jesus lightly. But the, the gospel is also supposed to build up, isn't it? You know, the sound doctrine that says that we are great sinners who have been loved by a great saviour in Jesus. And that we have a gospel where God's love does not leave us as we are that he wants us to transform our very lives so that we might live as his children. The aim of the gospel minister is to hold these things dearly and to speak and encourage all of us 
together, to spur us on in, in the truth that we have and the truth that we share in the common faith. And so to close, my friends, uh, do you believe what you say you believe? Does your life bear this out? You know, we don't want to be like uh, those in Animal Farm for a whole lot of reasons, uh, but especially we don't want to be those where there is a gap between the truth we profess and, and our lives as they lived out. No, we want our faith in Christ to shape us, the gospel that has saved us to be working and transforming us, making inroads into our hearts each and every day. And I'm going to pray that God is doing that in our church as individuals, in our leadership, um, well, and, and in all of us. So why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us grace and peace in your Son, Jesus. We ask that your truth would just be making consistent inroads in our lives, that we would be captivated by the gospel of grace, that you have loved us and saved us through your Son. Father, we are sorry when we go our own way, when we are disengaged or captivated by the things of this world. Please help us to turn and to repent and, and to continue following you, knowing that in your mercy you have loved us before time began and you are drawing us towards our eternal home. And so we just ask that this would be a church that is shaped by your truth. To the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen.